Welcome back to Joker Men Podcast. 1986, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers True Confessions Tour with Bob Dylan. And we're halfway through the set and uh, we are joined by Ray Paget. And what 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 befalls us now? Where, where, where do we find ourselves after that rousing rendition of Lenny Bruce? Well, uh, according to... The disc here, uh, or the the set here, uh, we're we're on to we're back to a little bit of the Empire Burlesque material, uh, and Bob delivers this one with another uh, rousing uh, introduction. It should be noted when the night comes falling from the sky, which he I'm forgetting it off the top of my head. Maybe one of you guys can remind me here, but he mentions that this is a song like about his critics or something like that, right? Uh, thank you. That's, uh... I don't know if it's out here yet. I think it's out of print in the map. Anyway, it's kind of my response to people. You know, it's kind of people that sit around and judge you all the time. I don't know if any of you ever have had that experience. You know, people that constantly say, impress me. make a live album just from the intros just exactly that's that's honestly what the most interesting uh, thing is uh for his entire set this is where he says the album might uh the album's out of print in america um but then he yeah he goes on to talk about uh this song being being for his critics which i gotta say i've never really parsed the lyrics very closely on night comes falling from the sky i'm too too distracted by the uh the (laughs) plonking synthesizers doesn't he say like well like this song is like you know, critics ask me about like my personal life and I don't like that. And then this song, you know, I write about what happens in my personal life you know, in my songs. Yeah. I think the personal life intro is, is the ballad, is ballad of a thin man. That's thin man. He, yeah. He, he attacks critics and judges like 20 times in this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the judiciary this is very anti judicial branch. And and I guess I've just never really gone that deep to think about like, well, what is when the night comes falling from the sky? What is that really about? Is that about reading a bad review in the local paper? I, I guess it must be. It's one that I have really had a hard time. I, I actually really like Night Comes Falling from the Sky, I think, especially there's like so many different versions. Obviously, the original Empire Burlesque cut and then the original bootleg series cut that sounds like a Springsteen song. And then the two newer cuts that are somewhere in between those two from springtime. And then this version as well, which is somewhere kind of like closer to the Empire Burlesque sound, um, but maybe a little more straightforward and, and simple rock. And it's, it's a fun song. Um, but I just, yeah, I have never taken the time to actually figure out what the hell it's about. I have no idea what the lyrics are. And nevertheless, this is like 
one of my favorite songs of the whole show, just because Hell it yeah. is so fun. Yeah. It is so it's, high, it's energy. high energy, it's really catchy. It's just like everything that's great about this combo with the singers and Petty and the Heartbreakers yep. is, is like, is it's here. And if, if this, if, you know, if the synths are getting someone away from the Empire Burlesque version, this is like close enough, but without the sort of dated production again. Yeah, exactly. This is like, you know, sort of it could be the ideal version. Am I just crazy? Am I crazy? Or do does it totally sound like uh, Watchtower at the beginning? Like the first like 30 seconds, like completely sounds like Watchtower to me, right? <laughs> That's what it is. That's totally right. Yeah. Like he, he, I, I was singing it to myself in my car yesterday, like just to make sure that it actually made it. Like it's literally the same, like, melody and the same like meter and everything like it it sounds like it just could become watchtower and then it turns into night comes falling from the sky but that similarity i've never made that connection and maybe that connection doesn't actually exist on the recorded version because it sounds like you know whatever it's (laughs) nothing else in bob's catalog (laughs) but this this version almost sounds like they like he rehearsed Watchtower with the Heartbreakers. And then Bob was like, you know what? I'm just going to, you you guys play Watchtower. I'm just going to do <laughs> When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky on top of it. <laughs> Maybe it's like a girl from the North Country boots of Spanish leather. Right, yeah, exactly. Where he can't play the same, you know, you shouldn't play them both in the same set. Uh, boots of Spanish leather. Love that song. Great song. Yeah, he used to play that a lot live. I wonder if it'll come back soon. Yeah, I wonder how much more just I, I can't help but continue to think about the tour. I can't I, I wonder how much more like um change we're gonna get on the set list. Cause the big news as of when we're recording this, at least, is that every grain of sand is back. Which right. if that boy, if if we get an every grain of sand at that beacon show, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna flip my wig. I'm gonna lose my cool. He's not doing it in a traditional manner, though. It's it's kind I don't of even want to hear it. I haven't, heard it. I haven't heard it at once. All right, right. You don't even know that it's plunking and staccato. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, my version. I'm. I haven't heard it either because that's the one song he's added since the first two shows. And I'm like I say, I'm seeing this one other show, so I'm really hoping it sticks in. Yeah, hopefully he plays it in Philly what's, too. What's the the precedent, Ray? For like, I mean, it seems like. He likes to add stuff willy nilly as as he just evolves through the through a tour. Like it's it. I'm I'm expecting that we'll see a lot of unexpected inclusions over the course of the next what two years. Well, certainly over the next several years, you would imagine. But just on this like you know short initial leg, you know, you wonder if there's much more evolution to come, or if he's kind of already pulled everything out of his bag of tricks that he's going to for because he's only got he's only on a two or three weeks. Like I think it ends yeah, think like it first week of December, right? Like first second day of December. Yeah. What do you think, Ray? About like precedent wise, what does he seem to do? Does it seem to just be like he's kind of attached to a few songs in certain chunks of time, and then he'll move on? Or do you see patterns there? So in recent years, you know, he used to change his set list up every night, and you'd get wild songs from back in the catalog or covers. And in the last, really since the Sinatra era started, he's doing what people call the set, which every tour he will come up with a bunch of new songs and maybe he'll fiddle around with it at the top. But then it kind of starts staying the same night after night. Mm -hmm. We're recording this, I think, after the fifth show and the first three shows all really changed. And then the last two have been the same. Um, So it's possible he won't change it anymore. I personally... I feel like crossing the Rubicon would be a natural to make an appearance. That and Murder Most Foul, as we're recording, are the only two he hasn't played. And Murder Most Foul is its own thing, but Rubicon would seem fairly straightforward. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it seems like he's going to fall into a set that doesn't vary that much from here on out. But then next time he tours, if he goes back to Japan or something in Europe in the spring, it could be totally different. Right. His, his attitude seems to change pretty dramatically when he goes to a foreign land. And I think that this is one of those, this show, which is in Australia, Australia, Sydney. It's one of those uh, times when I don't know, he lets his guard down. I think historically um, when he is in uh, an exotic locale, like Budokan is, I think a great example. Like the fact that he even was like, I'm going to do these songs you asked me to do. Uh, but I'll do them my own way. You know, I don't know. There's a certain level of reverence or like respect for sharing his music abroad that seems to come across um, in various like foreign shows. And in this one, it seems like he's, he's, yeah, trying to win over these Aussies. Yeah. I mean, he's explaining what the songs mean and, just sort of ingratiating himself yeah. with them. And ingratiating is not a mode Bob Dylan goes to very often, right. but he kind of does here. Well, after uh, Night Comes Home from the Sky, we get uh, another, what I'm guessing is one of these, uh, these classic uh, covers. Ray, you probably can fill us in here, or at least better than I can, uh, Lonesome Town. Yeah, so this is uh, this is Ricky Nelson, who we actually wrote about in Chronicles. He wrote about liking Ricky Nelson's covers of many of his songs. Well, there uh, we go. And I didn't know this until re 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 uh, you know listening to the set, but I looked it up. Ricky Nelson had just died uh, like a, like a month and a half before the show. Uh, so presumably that uh, was yeah, the inspiration. But- Though again, like some of these other covers that you know you think are just sort of of their moment, occasionally in the Never Ending Tour, he has dug Lonesome Town back out that's amazing i mean i really feel like this song it's not a song i even know and it's just got this it goes down so smooth for me like i really like to hear dylan do songs like this and you see again and again dylan writing songs that seem to be like i want to write something like lonesome town like like um where where, where teardrops fall comes to mind something like yeah sure i want to write just like uh a classic song. And, and this one really has a bit of that feeling too, of like Dylan just wanting to like mine that jukebox of his uh, memory. Well, I wonder if the, and this is sort of maybe over psychological analyzing, but like, you know, it does seem like he's going back to a lot of these songs of his youth. And when he was a kid and you wonder how much of that is, he's sort of searching, he's feeling a little lost so like go back, you know, going back to where yeah. it all started, these songs he heard on, you know, the radio that he was, uh, you know, getting from down in Memphis or whatever at late at night.
partly maybe him trying to be like, well, you you people in this crowd, you ought to like this. Like, this is good stuff that I'm showing you. Like, this is important stuff to me. There is a, almost like an aggressiveness to being like, I'm going to throw up this song you probably never heard of, but I really like it. So it's it's theme time, maybe theme time radio hour. Yeah, <laughs> theme time live. <laughs> yeah, I I think there's honestly like a the, the same impulse that drove like the early '90s records, uh, "Goes I've Been to You" and "World Gone Roll." Like I I think that's that's this too. Uh, very different yeah. kinds of music on those records. Obviously, this is like you know the the teenage doo wop singles, you know that that were written by you know Tin Pan Alley or not Tin Pan Alley guys, but professional songwriters. Uh, and then the covers records were you know kind of folk uh, classics from England or Appalachia or whatever. But it's st- it's all you know, it, it's this this stuff that he uh, like swam in naturally as a kid, and just like kind of um, it, it made its way into him through osmosis almost. It, it's just like you know as natural as breathing air. Um, and they're completely different styles of music from completely different eras of time, but it's all um, you know uh, fuel that he can draw on stuff that he's equally appreciative of uh, and knowledgeable about. Uh, and that's why, I mean, that's why he's Bob. It's so cool to see like literally the history of recorded music filtered through this one guy's kind of memory of it and interpretation of it, um, you know, in live settings as well as obviously recorded. Next song is Ballad of a Thin Man. Uh, here we this go is, again. This is, <laughs> however, a ballad of a thin man that gets a lengthy intro where Dylan actually says, that this is, you know, it's the, I, as far as I know, the only time where he's really just said, basically, this is about when uh, people used to ask me questions in the 1960s and I disliked <laughs> the feeling of them asking me the personal questions. I didn't mind them asking me about the music, but I don't like when they ask me about my personal life. All right. This is a little song I wrote a while back. After a, oh, how long? Oh, shit, I don't know. 20 years, maybe. Maybe more. I forgot how old I am, actually. All right, so, you know, famous people, they always expect to do these things called press conferences. And everybody sits around and asks you questions about your personal life. I don't mind answering questions about music things, but I can't stand answering questions about my personal life. Well, some people enjoy that, I just don't. Anyway, uh, they like to know about your politics and religious life and sex life. I don't answer none of those questions. I figure I write about that stuff. So if you... Anyway, you know, it's not really what a person says, it's a person's life speaks for itself, right? So every once in a while, you know, you got to put somebody in the place. They don't want to go in their place. Well, it's like what's happening in the Philippines right now. Somebody's being put in their place. Every so often, it's got to be done. And if you don't want to do it, somebody else will. It's a good thing, though, to be put in your place. It's happened to me a few times, actually. I've rather appreciated the experience in the long run. So here's a song about putting somebody in their place. If you ever need to do it, don't you be afraid now. 
about my sex life. Yeah, he mentioned yeah. sex life, which, I mean, a Freudian, uh, an analysis of, of Dylan here would be like, uh, Dylan is, uh, he feels, uh, he is alienated from his sexual being, so he is bringing this up to uh, make the audience to feel that he is still virile, still has a sexual persona. He mentions that, and I think he he does a, a pretty funny uh, little job here of going like, this is song about you got to put those people in their place sometimes because if you don't do it, then it ain't going to get done or something right. like that. And then he goes into, you know, our favorite uh, song for him to do, Ballad of Thin Man. <laughs> you big uh, ballad guy, Ray? I like Ballad of a Thin Man. And actually, someone um, posted a cue sheet, like the written out set list from this current tour. And Ballad of a Thin Man was listed as an alternate, which means the, really? band, the band has Ballad of a Thin Man rehearsed and queued up. Will they play it on stage in the next month or not? Who knows? But that was the only song that like they hadn't played that was that was listed there. And they still I swear it. to God, if they play Thin this Man at tour? the Beacon show, yeah. I'm going to be pissed. Two, like two days, like the Chicago show, someone posted it and we've got a Discord for flag, for my newsletter subscribers and someone got, got Charlie, the drummer's uh, set list from on stage and it had Ballad of a Thin Man listed. Jeez. Maybe we can acknowledge now that there is something that we heard through the grapevine. It didn't come true. It did, has not yet come to pass. I think we can just say what it is now because it, it hasn't happened. So it's like we'll see. We'll all see together. Someone told us at one of the th- shows that has been played. Well, we, we won't say which one. That when in a similar situation in the lyric sheets that had been laminated and printed out, um, not in that order, there was a certain song which was uh, not played and hasn't been played yet um, from the new record. That would take a long time to play. Mm. It would take up a large percentage mm-hmm. of the set list, which but, obviously hasn't which, happened yet, but apparently, yeah, there was some sort of laminated like set list or something or, yeah, lyric sheet that someone got at one of these venues or saw that that song was on, apparently. So you're you're saying Allegedly. really really slow crossing the Rubicon, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. He just, he just drags it out for twenty minutes, endless. Yeah, uh, yeah. we'll see. Uh, it's we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. I think it's we'll a hard. I'm, I think it's. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. At that first show, he was playing so many songs. At the first show in Milwaukee, he played like he basically never played this many, you know, new songs from the album in one show. I thought he was going to encore with Murder Most Foul. I thought he was building up to that. That's what I, yeah, yeah, that's like, what I thought too. Do it. I, I was saying to Ian, like, boy, he's about to do it. I never would have thought he would. And then by, by the time the encore break happened, I was like, he's, he's going to come back and Dark Day and Dallas it. Right. And he didn't, but oh, I wouldn't have been man. surprised at all at that point. And, Hopefully and he he's, did. he's feeling in that New York state of mind. Or maybe he'll right. do it in Texas. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> yeah, in, in Dallas itself. Um. Yeah, Dallas, where they just recent, or was it Dallas or Houston, where there was recently that fucking tragedy? Houston, Houston, I think. Houston. Yeah, I don't think that there's a high likelihood of a similar mass casualty event happening at a Bob Dylan show, but everyone stay safe out there. 
I don't have a joke to, to make about it. Yeah. No <laughs> jokes. Good vibes only, especially with, uh, with, uh, you know, Bob up there. Who's, um, you know, maybe not, uh, quite the spring chicken that he once was. Has an 80 year old man ever done like even this intensive? Att- I guess the stones are doing it right now. Right. They're but not, like, they're not 80. Are they aren't, aren't, aren't they Bob's age or in that range? I don't know. Close to the it. guy I think of is BB King. I know BB King was touring hard into his eighties. Um, okay, there's not. It can't be many though. There's Man. definitely been people who were physically the age eighty, but weren't actually eighty. <laughs> who who uh, made it to eighty? He's not the first one. Yeah, to make it. To- no, no. I mean, I mean, people, musicians whose bodies were basically the the state of an eighty year old. Yeah, had gone through the misery <laughs> that a, a normal eighty year old had. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. Marky Smith, uh, R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, he was he was 150 uh, on yeah, body at, years at, by the time he passed. 60. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thin Man, you know, it's Thin Man. Uh, I like hearing the intro. I, I don't like hearing Thin Man. Uh, or I don't dislike Thin Man. I just would rather hear virtually anything else besides Thin Man. And then we've got a petty song. Two petty songs, Rock and Roll Star and Refugee. That's right. Yeah. Good petty songs, you know, no complaints. Refugee is a really good song. Yeah, and I, I like the yeah. I was when I was listening to the rock and roll star thing. Um, you know, obviously the birds figure large in you know Bob Dylan's sort of history, and he never toured backing them. But of course, they're also like Tom Petty's main influence, and so right. that like there's some of that here, like. Oh, yeah. I totally hit in the guitar tone and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like in like this alternate history where Bob Dylan toured with the birds instead of the band or in addition to the band or something. Wow. I've never thought about the birds being an influence on on Tom Petty, but I I totally hear that. Yeah. The guitar and the, you know, the chiming sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The old chiming thing. We love a chiming guitar. Times of freedom and otherwise. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so then we got Refugee, and then Refugee sort of, is this the one that, like, melts out in the middle of the song, and then, um, Rainy Day Women picks up, or there's, there's some sort of weird cut in this, um, you know, it is a bootleg, but I guess maybe it isn't Refugee, but somewhere, one of these songs, is it Thin Man? It might, I'm not 100%, but it might be, I assume it's a CD break or something, but, or, or a tape flip, you know, this is the old days where someone's gotta, whoever's bootlegging this has to take out their, tape and put in another one so it put it yeah that's a good point lost to time yeah. however long it took them to fumble another one in it's gone. you're totally right yeah it is thin man i'm listening back to it right now yeah especially because it's it only shows up as like four minutes on the actual track list we know thin man takes a little bit longer than four minutes to play um yeah so then it's refugee and then uh and then rainy day women uh one that we all know and love that tom petty would go on to cover at the uh, Madison Square Garden uh, 30th, uh, you know, anniversary thing where Lou did Foot of Pride and stuff. So clearly this was one that uh, they enjoyed playing and uh, kept in their repertoire for a couple years down the road. This one was maybe the biggest surprise for me. This is like the hit. Maybe this is my ballad of a thin man. This is the like hit that I just could not care less about. Do not give two shits. Never want to hear it. And like, <laughs> I almost liked it. I almost liked it. Cause it's, it's again, it, it does fit this band. Like I'll give them that again, the words I keep using high energy, fun, etc., all fit this song. And I mean, I really have no use for any day women, but if I got to hear it, this is kind of the way I want to hear it. I, I don't sure. know if you've considered Right, that this song has uh, 
a double, a bit of a double meaning. <laughs> you could actually listen to the song and, and you can hear the lyrics and you can think of it more than one way. Everyone must get stoned, like like to be stoned by rocks. What if you were also talking about <laughs> marijuana? Doesn't he literally explain that in the intro to the song or at the end? Yeah. He does it in the after the song. All right, everybody must get stoned. I write a lot of songs that can be taken like a couple of different ways. That's one of them. But here's one that can't be taken but just one way. Just in case you didn't get it, this had, that one has two meanings. Yeah, it's it's probably the worst moment of the whole show. Uh, I love that. I love that. It, it's like one of these moments where he's trying to... It's a hello, you know, like, hey, fellow kids type of thing. Like, it's really... It's wait, not... Wait. It, it does the opposite of what he's trying to do in terms of being like, I'm hip. I know. I know about weed. I know about smoking weed. And he then goes into seeing the real you at last by saying, but this is a song that can be taken, but only one way. <laughs> and then he busts out seeing the real you at last. Yeah. yeah. That's the one we're all thinking of as the one song that can only be taken. Yeah. Like, one what? way. <laughs> What is that intro? I think it's just Dylan trying to, again. It's one of these moments where he's like, "Well, you know that song; cause it's a classic, and it's very fun. It's very cool." But you also know, surely, the song I released in the like last month or whatever. That's um, seeing the real you at last. It's a new classic from Bob. Dylan. Yeah, modern classic, exactly. Um, before we get too far into that though, rainy day women, I just like, I, uh, I, I feel you on like not needing to hear it, Ray. Um, uh, and I also probably don't need to hear it. I, you know, it, when it's, when it's three minutes long, like this one is like, I can, I can take just a little like interlude like this, but I also get the sense at certain points throughout this. And this is maybe one of them, um, that like some of this set might have been, or, or there might've been an influence, could have been an influence of just like the heartbreakers, like wanting to like play these like indelible Bob Dylan classics with Bob Dylan. Like how cool must it have been to be one of the heartbreakers and like Bob Dylan is bringing you along for tour and you get to play fucking rainy day women with him. Like one of the like all time, just signature songs in his entire catalog. Like there's just, there's like almost a like a like youthful rock and roll fantasy element to like being able to get up on stage and like play this along with him um, as he's uh, as he's like sort of not really singing all the lyrics correctly. There's a lot of like, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey's in this version. <laughs> um, but it's just, it, you know, it's kind of a fun, like, in a, just, you know, it's like throwing a bone to the crowd, but also throwing a bone to like the band behind him, you know, just playing, playing rainy day women with Bob Dylan. Like what could be cooler? You know what else? It's like it's like throwing a weed, a marijuana cigarette to the mm. band. Mm. <laughs> a jazz cigarette. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I think that's definitely plausible because I was listening, not to jump ahead, but, we you know, we'll get to like Rolling Stone soon here. And I was listening to that and like, it's literally Ben Montench is doing the Al Cooper organ part and Mike Campbell is doing the guitar licks. And it really is, you say like a, like a rock and roll fantasy camp, like, you know, Bob doesn't usually perform it literally that similar to the original, but it really feels like they're excited to tap into the nuances of this you know iconic song. And so that could be something about why they pick a song like this or some of the other, you know, hits they're mixing in. Yeah. 
Yeah, just totally. to to pop back into the modern day with Bob's current tour, as we've been doing periodically. Tyler Wilcox, a uh, friend of the show and uh, for, and uh, sometimes guest, um, says that on this current tour, uh, Bob seems to be playing "I'll Be Your Baby Tonight," like to be alone with you, and to be alone with you, like I'll be your baby tonight. <laughs> he's just forgot. He's he's just gotten him confused. <laughs> I'll be your baby tonight, and to be alone. With you. <laughs> I uh, hope that's true. <laughs> he got it wrong once and now he's just doubling down. You know what they say to repeat the same thing uh, twice? It's a mistake and three times it's art. Isn't that something they say? Uh, yeah, the key, just like uh, the key to your keychain. Uh, that other uh, <laughs> saying that <laughs> phrases. You're just, you're just yeah, full I, of. Uh, oh, full of a string, tonight, string to your bow. That's what it was. A string to his bow. <laughs> okay. You know what it was? It was another hole to his flute. That's what I meant to say. Okay. <laughs> I'm back to Budokan now, talking about flute solos. Oh, yeah. Another they could cob use some to flute his, on uh, this. Cob to his corn. <laughs> <laughs> all right I, uh, <laughs> what's next uh seeing the real you at last <laughs> the song that can haven't only be taken already, one way have we already <laughs> talked about that it's been it's, you can take it only but one way it's not what he says he's like you can take this but he says like but one way but, ju- but so, just one way yeah yeah i got something like that can, i got a lot of songs that can be taken like a couple of different ways that's one of them. That's what he says about yeah, rainy day, rainy day yeah. women. <laughs> so good. I love that. Here's so much. one that can't be taken, but just one way <laughs> 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 launches into seeing the real you at last. <laughs> Change your mind And it looks like you will From now on I'll be busy Ain't going nowhere fast I'm just glad it's over I'm seeing the real you This might have been like, oh, he played this at Farm Aid. I just Googled it. Oh, he's got, he played it at Farm Aid with that scarfy thing where he's got like the weird, like really dark, like leathery looking skin and like the whole leather outfit. That was, that's cool. Um, Wasn't, seems- so he played, isn't it wild that he played the scene, the real you at last at Farm Aid and uh, Lou Reed played um, like new sensations at that same show. <laughs> that's so cool. A couple of classic uh, classic performances from classic uh, New York artists. It's wild just like realizing, you know, th- that whole thing of Dylan and Shadow Kingdom where he said, you know, these are the early songs, how it's mm-hmm. reoriented, like everyone's sense of time and perspective, because he's technically right, you know, that so much of that is early. First half, it's all first half of the career, including, um, was it, what was it you wanted? What that was, was it, the, yeah. 
Oh Mercy? Yeah, that yeah. just squeaked in when realizing the Oh Mercy is the first half of the career was like slightly mind boggling. It's wow. it's really like just starting to dawn on me. If that's how time works. Like, you know, you just realize that like, shit, like somebody like Bob Dylan's keeping track apparently, but the rest of us, we all like, we think like, uh, of songs that like came out in 2016 as being like, uh, like, I don't know, like that didn't come out that long ago. And pretty soon it's going to be like 20 years since classic man came out. <laughs> This is, this is just an errant thought of mine. Anyway, sorry. Time, man. It's crazy. Uh, I'm seeing the real time at last. <laughs> Sounds like uh, somebody's getting stoned, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Not throwing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of a double entendre, if you, if you, if you understand what I'm thinking. Oh, I see. Here. You didn't mean that I was being hit with rocks. You right, yeah, I you're might not, be yeah. getting... If uh, impaired from from alcohol or or weed from blazing the the fire shit across the borderland is a song <laughs> that is uh, the name of one of the bootlegs of this show at least uh, oh, is which it? is like yeah of course it is yeah. right yeah <laughs> another uh, cover yes no right song that he played a lot. Uh-huh beyond this in the first decade of, of the never ending tour another one that he carried with him for a while wow That's so like what, all of these cover songs like aren't just random one-offs here it's stuff that he like put into sets years down the line after this just i, no I think justine is in the random <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> you don't have ben mob playing the organ there's no song left so <laughs> justine was of its time but most of the others a remarkable thing to think about is that this is just before the real launch of the never ending tour. Like this, what we're witnessing is kind of the lead up to that, that tour, which never ends. Yeah. I mean, we're only two years out. It's a big two years with the dead and, and stuff, but uh, it's not that long. Yeah. Dylan least- really does seem to have these like moments where he goes into like a cocoon of some kind. Like he, he seems to foster a sort of transformation before like a big move. And these shows with, with Tom Petty and the heartbreakers and then, and the dead respectively, like they, that's like a kind of workshopping phase, whether he knew it or not for, I guess what would become the never ending tour. And it's just interesting to think about it that, that way, I guess. Well, and he also just, just like a week, week before the show, I wrote a newsletter about this a little while ago. He joined the, in Sydney, I think, he joined Dire Straits for like many songs. And it looked like he was also sort of auditioning Dire Straits to be another backing wow. band in the Heartbreakers, Grateful Dead mold. That, that's my theory, at least, because he Damn. was there for like a lot. And so, yeah, I think he kind of was going deep into this. What if I just get a whole bunch of like all-star bands to back me and, and mix them up for a while? Then he did that for a year and a half. And then he was like, Oh, the hell with this. I hate this. Uh, <laughs> let's get players who just want to play with me. And it's the never ending tour. Right. Eventually when the Wilburys happens, it seems like that's like the, the actual right time for him to do that in the way where it was really actually fun for him, actually creatively productive and financially like really successful. Like all those pieces fell together all the things that you see here, he's for, he's really trying to make that happen. 
And with the Wilburys, it seems like just the vibe was right. And you you actually do get that all-star band together, just like barely having to move their pinky finger and just yeah. like hit songs happen. Yeah, that you, that's all true. But the Wilburys were, you know, more of his peers on one element, George and, and Roy uh, in particular, obviously. Uh, and on the other side, just sort of a sort of a long weekend, a uh, bit of a lark kind of project instead of like an actual like functioning band that they were trying to, um, you know, embark on a whole lengthy career with. But Bob with Dire Straits behind him, that's a fascinating kind of concept or alternate history there. Like like if, if he had Dire Straits on the Real Life Tour instead of, you know, I guess he did. Nopler was on that tour with Mick Taylor, wasn't he? Right. I don't think so. Was he I not? I, it, he I, don't was. Think he, I don't think he was part of the regular band. No. Huh. Well, in any case, um, if, if it were Dire Straits I mean, instead of whatever that album, sound was. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would have. Well, and speaking of something. alternate, speaking of alternate history. So I, I interviewed Jim Keltner and, you know, the, the, the Sideberry. And he said they were, they were like close to doing an actual Traveling Wilburys tour which related to what we're saying about it kind of being a lark on the one hand would have been amazing. On the other hand, I wonder if it would have sapped some of the magic, you know what I mean? Like it became more of a, a job and he's got three months of dates. The magic was sapped even, I think by a record uh, two slash three of Wilburys (laughs) because it's as, as good as like professional and good solid that record is, but it's not, I don't know. There's something about, the first Wilbur's record that just like, I can't help but really adore that. It feels like a sleepover party with these guys. Just like, there's such an infectious sense of like, they're just hanging on the rumpus room. It's so fun. It's like what it's really like in a way, like a pinnacle of rock music. <laughs> this is the crowning achievement of the rock and roll genre. It is, is because like, Wilbury's volume. What happens but... when you get to the pinnacle of rock stardom uh, what do you do? You people usually burn out and just fucking suffocate on their own uh, supply. They they lose steam. But like these guys, who would all continue to keep making music, by the way, ended up just using that excess energy. Well, to be all like, of them except for Roy. Yeah, but he was still doing music to the end. Sure, sure. And so, like these guys, all just like even in their spare time, they decided. Let's get together and make some more music. And it ended up being like a wild success. Like, I don't know. It's just so beautiful. It is fun. But I I I really do think that like once the once Roy wasn't there anymore, the the spark, the light, that's, that's the true. the sun, the you know, the 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 star around which everyone else orbited, the, the center of gravity was just it was gone. You feel a little bit of that uh Roy spirit throughout this whole show that as we've discussed like songs like uh Lonesome Town and uh, and, uh, and and the other covers that you see here even Lucky Old Son to Yeah, you almost extent, expect like, like Ubi Dooby to pop up on this set list or something. Yeah, or or like Crying or something, you know, yeah. or it feels like that could happen and you know across the borderline another example of one of these moments where they dip in to like the the deeper well of of like rock and roll roots and do it in a really passionate and one of the, honestly the more natural and some of the best parts of the show are are those moments I think and um, then we have I and I hell yeah For any of you rock critics who are out there. 
but rock critics live the illness now. Jokerman late favorite, recent favorite, I know. It's funny how, how much he moved on from Infidels. I mean, this is, if I'm not mistaken, the first and only Infidels song. And we're only talking two years out, and he barely toured Infidels. So yep. it's kind of surprising um, how little, especially Empire Burlesque has, I don't know, six or seven songs. Surprising that Infidels isn't a little better represented here. Yeah. And uh, the and even the Empire Burlesque cuts are like like not even the best songs on Empire Burlesque. Like there's no emotionally yours. There's no tight connection. Obviously, there's no dark eyes. He, um, uh, there's no something's burning. Look up um, the, the night after this one, he attempted dark eyes live for the first time whoa, in shit, the solo really? set. And it was oh. such a train wreck that he didn't do it again for a decade. He made it like oh. half a verse in. He starts muttering about how he doesn't know what key it's in. He forgets the words. And, uh, <laughs> It, it goes You're south breaking real my fast. heart. And then he, oh, then he doesn't Bob. do it until the nineties. <laughs> That's, That's very sad. Uh, uh, speaking of sad, he says on the next in the intro to I and I, he says this one's for all the rock critics in the, the audience. Rock- <laughs> Never forget what the rock critics did to Elvis. <laughs> you really read something before the show that got under his skin or something. Half the dedications are about critics. Mm-hmm. His feelings were hurt in this. <laughs> and um, next you get, I mean, you get a great version of I and I, a song which I foolishly just like didn't get for so long. Like it took me so long to, I didn't understand that I and I was like a Rastafarian sort of uh, nod, like lyrically. And you need to educate it, yourself on other cultures. Evan. It's true. And um, I need to um, explore Jamaican spiritual history you need to you need to go barbados i need to evan go go (laughs) there's a good tribute album uh one of the first albums i ever reviewed actually in high school it's a reggae tribute to dylan called uh is it is it rolling bob there's another uh double (laughs) double meaning for you no that one can be taken another way too i see very clever but they do i and i and that that's like i think my that was my intro to that song I, I, it really, for me, took until the springtime version of I and I for me to really dig it, which is like, is the way that song should sound. Cause like, I, I went back and listened to the Infidels version recently, and it's just like, it's so much slower and more plodding and just like kludgy. But that springtime version, man, it's just like snappy and sharp and just like sexy. I love it. 
It's so good. This one is like, I think somewhere in between. It's not quite as like bopping along as the, um, as the springtime alternate cut, but uh, it's got a little more, a little more life to it. I think courtesy of the heartbreakers uh, and the backing vocals are nice here too. Yeah. Queens of rhythm are like on some of these songs, the secret stars, I think. The Queens. Do we know who the Queens of Rhythm are? Is this Carolyn Dennis or Clyde King or anyone, or is this just some other it is, group of people? It, I I looked it up because I was curious too. It is other people for this tour. Uh, Carolyn Dennis is the only returning person from gospel, and she comes for the U.S. tour in the summer. Um, Got but it. for this, Queen Esther Morrow uh, is the leader, and I think that's where the name comes from. Uh -huh. Queens of Rhythm. And well, I, I could be taken a couple different ways, you know, right? There you go. <laughs> but yeah, they weren't they weren't from the gospel years. Interesting. So it's new uh new gang of folks. Uh all right. Well, what else uh what else we got here? Oh, well, uh, here's here's one that we all know and love, right, folks? Uh you hear this one? You know this one? Uh like a rolling stone. <laughs> After that is in the garden. <laughs> I like the placement of this, at least. You know, uh, I think we talked yeah, about this yeah. a little bit with Ian on uh, London 81, uh, where Rolling Stone was like the third or fourth song in the entire set and just like feels wrong there. Like it, 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 if you're going to play Rolling Stone, like play it at the end, at least. And this is coming towards the towards the conclusion. It's still like, you know, there are probably a zillion other songs I would rather hear than yet another version of Rolling Stone. But like we were talking about, you know, with Rainy Day Women, like how cool must it be to be Ben Montench playing the Al Cooper part on this song? How cool must it be just to be like in this arena hearing Bob Dylan play fucking like a Rolling Stone? Even in I mean, is it the thing is like, I'm just going to be the devil's advocate here. Oh, that's, that's a position you haven't taken before. I've not. I'm just going to say, like, isn't it? I, I'm really mean devil advocate here. Uh <laughs> Isn't it like watching somebody pick up a, a priceless vase in a museum and sort of jostle it around their hands, throw it up in the air, and go like, huh, this looks pretty cool. Is this expensive? Is this any good? When that when Dylan plays this song in the 80s. Well, I that's mean, what, that's, that's what it feels like sometimes. I mean, at some in some ways that's cool. But sometimes I do feel like it's like uh you're not really like this song is more important, deeper, more delicate, just like more expensive than you're treating it. I may, maybe with this version. Yeah. But like at some point him playing Rolling Stone became cool again. Like the, right. the like the 2019 I, version of Rolling Stone is fantastic. I'm not saying that that is my actual opinion, but I do think that that is something people think like in the Dylan uh, universe, like that is sort of an unspoken aspect of Dylan's treatment of the song over the years is, and it's something he avoids. I want to point out on um, hard rain earlier in, in the show where he actually seems to, um, kind of he sl he pumps the brakes a bit and gives that song the attention that I think it deserves at least like the minimum of attention for it to actually come across as like as powerful a song as it is um I don't know that I mean it, when he it just doesn't always land um this version is solid though I I just want to point that out as I don't know if you feel the same way, right? That like you that's that's something that I think is in the back of everyone's mind 
at the worst times when the song is not, when it doesn't work. I mean, I think you could make a good case that Rolling Stone is like the one song that he basically perfected the first time out on the studio. Yeah, and every, other, every yeah. other live version has sort of been playing catch up. You know, usually it's the opposite because his studio stuff is all over the place. Um, yeah, I agree. I, and, and Rolling Stone, the thing is, it's not like he's only bringing it out for special occasions. I mean, when I first started seeing him in like the early 2000s, it was the encore every single night for right. years. And I can't, I can't say he was treating your vase with a lot of care and delicacy yeah, every <laughs> night. He was kind of, the house lights would come on and it was a sing-along. And, it, you know, if you were in the room, it was fun. If you were listening to the bootleg, you'd probably skip it. And I think it has that role. I agree with, I agree that the fall of 2019 kind of really reinvented it. That was like the first, honestly, the first live one I really was into sort of. Well, it's it's remarkable um, how that, how, how that works. Cause in the later years, a lot of these songs, which felt kind of in some way impotent compared to their like studio counterparts started like some of these later years renditions, they carry all this like extra, like a spiritual weight. Like the song is now approached in a way where it's like, it's a, a like the recitation of an old folk tale that feels like really palpable and, and, true just on a deep like a on the recitation level. of the old folktale lenny bruce yeah right <laughs> whereas they in this they labeled him in in this middle period it doesn't quite have that gravitas yet and he's not really i don't know it's just i think some things actually do just straight up age like fine wine or cheese salami hmm Absolutely. But he, but you got to go through the awkward middle period to get yeah. to the 2019 version that is the, the reinvented old folktale kind of thing. You know, what it's, was he going to do? Just not play one of his most popular songs? Well, yeah, 30, that's the other thing years. is like we're three freaks talking about this for two hours on a podcast. Uh, you know, he doesn't care about what we have. He has, you know, he's got to sell tickets and make people somewhat happy about coming to the show. Although I guess that, that's not that's clearly not his focus with this set uh, on the Rough and Rowdy tour. Yeah. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, what is he going to do? Not play his most popular song for years is yes, that's exactly what he would do. That is he's what he's going to do, do yeah. many, many, many occasions. He hasn't played "Knocking on Heaven's Door" in like twenty years or something at this point. Has it been that long? It's been ages. He hasn't played it since I first started seeing him, and that was no four. I don't Wait, think. Really? I think it had been a few Jeez. years before then too. I didn't it's been over. That. It's been over a decade for Tambourine Man. He used to play that fairly often. Over a decade. Yeah, twelve or thirteen years, I think. Yeah, 2003, you're right. Yeah, last May 13th, 2003 is the last Heaven's Door. He's only played it 460 times. Yeah. Wow. And that was just a one-off, it looks like. He did it a bunch in the fall of 02, and then he played it once May 03. The inner it. workings of Dylan's mind, it's just, it's it's That's our Bob. Incredible. <laughs> he just put it away. It's just like one of the greatest songs of all time. It just, it's, it's gone. It's done. He just like, put it away. Who else can do that? Just be like, I have like at my disposal, the ability to just like bring out like 25 of like the most recognizable songs anybody can think of. And for just periods of decades at a time, I'll just decide not to do that. See, which is why thin, like something like Thin Man or even Watchtower to an extent, like 
like, come on, like you've played them 2000 times, literally. Yeah, what like, is it about Thin Man <laughs> that is like so compelling to, to Bob Dylan? Uh, it really, well, I think this show actually answers that question with a vengeance because it tells you that he does care what people say about he him. He reads the comments. He reads the comments and Bout of Thin Man is a, is a mainstay and has been, and it seems always will be a mainstay in his live performance because it has something to do with his deep emotional trauma related to being uh, criticized for, <laughs> for just being himself. And writing his, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for writing a, and and yeah, being asked pestered about his music, but also yeah, being pestered about his uh, how he performs in the uh, in the bedroom. Um, next, we have in the garden, <laughs> which uh, we should note maybe the last uh, moment of uh, editorializing here. Bob introduces with a sort of long and rambling um, uh, introduction about like heroes, right? Like right. They, all of these different he- like. Bruce Springsteen is a hero. Uh, Michael Jackson is a hero. Money can be a hero. Success can be a hero. All right, we're going we're gonna to get out of here now. Yeah, we got to go. It's way past my bedtime. I don't know about you. Anyway, I'm going to sing this last song here. It's about my hero. Everybody's got a hero, you know. Some people got a hero... Lots of different heroes. Money is a hero. Success is a hero. Lots of people. Michael Jackson's a hero. Bruce Springsteen. John Wayne. Everybody's got a hero. Shut up now. Well, I won't sing about my hero. I don't care now about none of those heroes. I'm my own hero. And then he's like, this is a song about my hero. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's just about Jesus Christ again. like The one and only. It doesn't go away, this Jesus <laughs> thing. Not really. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing it's that pronounced later. I actually, so there's this, they were they released a video of of some of these songs at the time on, on Laserdisc. And it's like half the songs are from this show and half the songs are from the next night. And I get a kick out of it because I was watching it. It's on YouTube. In the Garden is first, and it's from the next night. And he's talking about heroes. And the first two heroes he cites, first two of like, these are the people's big heroes in 1986, are Mel Gibson and Michael Jackson. <laughs> like, boy, heroes talk, of that era did not age well. <laughs> talk about aging like fine wine. Yeah, right. These are, these are like, you know, heroes that everyone would relate to as possible heroes <laughs> at this point in time. <laughs> Uh, I mean, in terms of the Christian material, like this is not one of the uh, like headline Christian songs that I think about when I when I you know go back to this era, like and especially even ones that we would think of like that aren't like bitchy and like you know kind of sour tasting, like um, um, like Slow Train or like um, uh, Gotta Serve Somebody. Uh, like you would almost expect. Um, I don't know, what can I do for you or something in a slot like this, which is a, which is a really kind of sweet and like um, nice sounding kind of song. Um, and it's got a, a simple um, uh, emotionally resonant kind of message, but this is, 
So like, I don't dislike this version of it. It's just sort of, it's, it's kind of an out of left field uh, song, especially coming here at the very end of the set, like wrapping everything up. Yeah. Well, not... it's so ex- as some of those songs you mentioned, I mean, they're all Christian, but some of them are a little more allegory or vague or metaphor. And in the garden is such a literal, like, right. here's a story from the Bible. And so, yeah, it's almost like, like a Sunday school Kind of out song. of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty heavy, uh, you know, kind of uh, rendition by uh, the Harper. This is almost as like uh, hard rocking as you get in the entire set. It's not bad. It's just, uh, you know, it's just it's 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 sort of a weird one here to 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 close things out with. Well, also with in the garden, it's like you haven't had another Christian song this whole run and uh, of this show, and then it's like, all right, if I'm going to do one, what's like the most the hardest core Christian song, like one that cannot yeah. be thought of in any other way. It's not like every grain of sand. This, this song is like when they came for Jesus Christ and they betrayed him. Did they, <laughs> did he know that he was being betrayed by Judas? It's like in the most Mark, uh, chapter didactic. three, verse 14. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, uh, it really fits it all in, in one, in one song. <laughs> The whole religious thing, and and I do think that the whole intro is is a kind of uh, it's really something. I love that intro. Money, do you, you like Michael Jackson? Money and Michael Jackson are heroes. Some people's heroes, Michael Jackson. Some people's heroes, Lance Armstrong. He doesn't say that, but you, you get the picture. Louis um, Armstrong. John F. Kennedy. I like Jesus Christ. That's my taste in hero. That's my kind of guy. I'm barely even trying with this uh, uh, impression now. Blown in the wind. talk about a sing-along here to kind of uh wrap things up like you were mentioning uh, on rolling thunder earlier right this is this is it here it's just this is a real kind of good vibes literal sing-along i think it's like everyone on stage is at least it sort of sounds like it singing along here a lot of fun sounds a lot better than bono singing along to blown in the wind <laughs> at the uh slain 84 show everyone knows the lyrics at least yeah it's that again the, the show sort of ends like it that stays the whole time. We just had a, you know, relatively obscure Christian song. Next up, we're going to get another cover. And in between them, we got blown in the wind and knocking on heaven's door and they're real feel right. good and everyone can sing along and they sound kind of like you expect them to sound. And it's like, that's the dichotomy of this whole tour is mixing those two things. 
you really do kind of see every every facet of the man in this show. You know, it's it's uh, it, yeah. it's the the high highs, the low lows, the uh, kind of uh, vituperative um, uh, approach to the critics and the haters. Ooh. There you go. Oh, Mister Vituperative over here. Well, that's that's what came to me. That's that's what you pay a, a, a tens of thousands of dollars for a grad school degree for, my friend. Coming up with the word vituperative off the top of your head. Hey, uh, I I didn't do that. And now I know the word. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and, and we're both on the same stupid ass podcast. So <laughs> one of us, uh, one of us made the right decision and one of us didn't. Yeah. I stole your NFT just now by <laughs> right clicking and saving it. Uh, blowing in the wind, this version, I love this. It sounds like it's on a Prairie home companion. Yeah. It's like, it's just kind of like a fun, uh, anybody who paid money to see Bob Dylan, would would leave snapping their fingers and smiling if this was all he played. The answer, my friend, is blown in the wind. It's a it's like a really good version of blown in the wind. It's very fun. It's like got this almost like bluegrassy type of just like uh, shuffle. I don't know, uh, rootsy, and you got some backup vocals. It's really nice. It's just nice. Yeah, yeah I think a song like this needs like a light touch, not like a this is a statement. This is, you know, the voice, voice of the generation shit. Like, just like have some fun with it. Everyone can sing along. Don't take it too seriously. Get out of there in a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like a nursery rhyme at this point, especially like the number of times that everyone in the world has heard it. And in such varied contexts, like it's never going to, you're not going to get any sort of, uh, you know, revolutionary uh, feeling to it. So just, uh, just have fun with it. Uh, speaking of fun, uh, penultimate song, Uranium Rock. Uh, what is that? <laughs> so this this is the most interesting cover of the bunch, and I only just learned this. It is supposedly a cover of an old war. A, a, by, a, again, we're we're talking old, you know, early rock and roll. Um, a song by a guy named Warren Smith, who I hadn't heard of. But if you actually look at the lyrics, almost none of the lyrics are actually from the war, the Warren Smith song. So there's this book that um is all about Dylan covers. And it's speculated that Bob like kind of secretly wrote a new song and kind of like tagged it onto this, you know, this sort of riff from an old rock song. But like maybe this is like a stealth Dylan original that like kind of no one noticed. And that was not to say it's like a like a you know profound piece of work. It's you know, the lyrics are sort of barely there. But um I always thought it was just a straight cover, and actually most of the lyrics appear to be Bob's own. Right. Well, and that certainly wouldn't be the first time that he pulled something like that. Like he's always in the process of stealing old or not stealing, but, you know, taking old songs and reconfiguring them and grabbing snatches of lyrics from here and grabbing melodies from there and putting them together as his own, you know, and passing them off as his own original material, which, you know, uh, you know, certain people have certain opinions on. We've litigated that numerous times on uh, Drugman podcast. I feel like this might be the opposite, though. The opposite in that. In that, it seems like it's passed off as a cover, but it might stealth be. I see. Well, maybe it might you know what? Be maybe he actually wrote himself. Maybe he's paying all of the. He's paying everyone back for years of passing off their material as his own. For the future decades of continuing to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, get, you get one song. Uh, 
Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun, uh, you know, we started off with a rave em up with, uh, Justine. We're going to, we're going to close it out with a rave em up with, uh, uranium rock here. Um, uh, it's really just, I, I don't, I don't know what else to say. It's it, honking on, uh, honking on the guitar, everyone, uh, having a good time up on stage. Probably not going to throw this one on any playlist anytime soon, but you know, it's fun to hear. Uh, and then we wrap it up with heaven's door. Eight minutes long. This is a really, really good version of Heaven's Story. Fantastic version. Absolutely. I'm not even saying that just blinded by like a charm that I've gotten from the rest of this set. It is a really good version, just like period. And I think you get the best of Bob Dylan and Tom Petty, what that means with this performance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, it kind of kind of similar to what we we're saying with blowing in the wind. Like, might as well make it a fun sing-along, put some heart into it, put it at the very end of the show. So, you know, don't don't put it in like track number two or something. Right. Sort of have it this this iconic moment. Yeah, stretch it out for eight minutes. Why not? Just repeat the chorus over and over again. Everyone's gonna have a blast. Exactly. I know. You can't get enough of it. And uh, also, I think maybe the only instance um, on this entire set of Bob on the Harmonica, uh, but just a really beautiful and like kind of like like impassioned sounding uh, harmonica work from him here at the beginning of the song to introduce it. Um, I, I, I don't know. That like that's like shivers down my spine kind of moment uh, shit with that uh, that intro. It's like it, it's so beautiful and all the more so for him having not played the entire set with it and then bringing it out here just at the very end. I don't know. Uh, anytime Bob gets on the harp, I just, uh, obviously we're, we're probably past that point, uh, you know, for future shows that we're all going to be seeing, but um, you know, in, in, in any, any of the shows in the past, it's, it's a touching moment still. There's, there's yeah, some it's... harp in, uh, in the current, the current. Really? Album. A little, Shit. I think two songs maybe. Okay, say no bit. more. Yeah. I don't. I I, I got to keep spoiler. Sorry, uh, spo- oh, man. Spoiler alert! But yeah. <laughs> but anyway, in terms of the heaven's door here, I mean, I think it. What you're saying about the harp, you know, it is impressive how much he's connecting to some of, in some cases, almost cliched songs in his catalog. Whereas if you look at the set list on paper, you might think, all right, he's going to be into like the covers and the Empire Burlesque stuff, and then right. he's going to be going through the motions on Blown in the Wind. Heaven's door, you know, he's going to be basically half a slave during these. And like he actually, you know, as you say, blows a beautiful harp. He seems to be really trying vocally. Um, I, I think it is interesting that even when he's playing the, you know, the greatest of greatest hits, he seems to be connected to them in a way he does not always. Totally. Yeah. He seems galvanized by the 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 passion that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have for these classic songs. And it, it comes across no better than on this. Uh, performance of Knockin' on Heaven's Door, which really just feels like everybody is on the same page. It's ju- it's just really you can't ask for a better version of this song. I don't think like yeah, it's everything you want out of it, and everything you want out of an ending track. It should be noted. I would yeah. one million times rather hear Heaven's Door as the as the finale versus Watchtower. Yeah, I think that does it. Two and a half hours later, everyone goes home. Happy, happy as a clam down there in, in old Sydney, that, Australia. I think that's almost exactly the length of this, uh, this recording session. So we, 
<laughs> we've done justice. We should, yeah, we should, to it. We, we should, we should time it. See if we hit every song. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes for knocking on heaven's door. And yeah. <laughs> well, I've got the, I've got the harmonica here. I can just do a little, you know, like three minutes of that to, to run out the clock. Uh, any, um, any last thoughts? Still, still the, the, the best show of Bob's entire career, Ray. Sure. Why not? Hell yeah. I don't know. Maybe one of the most informative shows of his career. Definitely glimpse uh, behind the curtain. And also one of, I, I don't know if I can really justify best, but I could probably actually justify one of the most fun shows of his career. And fun oh. is not always the word, even with great shows. You don't, that's not the first adjective you're going to think of, but this one is just fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be noted also, like maybe some folks take this for granted at this point, uh, but like in terms of like bootleg recordings of, you know, shows, especially from like 30, 40 years ago, like this sounds really, really good. There's a couple wobbles on the first side and there's that, that weird fade uh, on the second, uh, second disc. But for the most part, like it, it's not like official release sounding quality, but it's like about as close to that as you're going to get from, you know, something by some random dude taping in, in uh, Sydney, Australia and putting out something called true confessions for Carol, you know, sounds like it's, (laughs) it's an easy listen. I think I read that this is a soundboard. So that, that random dude had a hookup at the sound guy where he was able to plug in. That's why it sounds so good. Yeah. Man, the I just want to point out the the backup vocalists on this, the Queens of Rhythm, they nail it. And there's that thing where you think the song is over, and then like one second later, they just launch back in. Yeah, it comes right back. It's an S tier version of this. Well said. Well, th- thank you very much, Ray. I, thank I, you. Ray. I can't thank you enough. This has been a really a, a treat to have you on. Thanks. No, thanks, guys. I I love this stuff, and I love this tour. And uh, it's hard to get people to. Talk to me about it for this long in normal circumstances. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for us to get people to talk to <laughs> talk uh, about uh, this stupid shit for no, two and that, a half hours. That's not true, and it's hard for us to get women to talk about. Right, this. that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we got to do the Lana Del Rey episode at some point. Um, plug uh, where, where can people find you again, Ray? Uh, my Twitter's at RayFP. My newsletter is called Flagging Down the Double E's. It's all about Dylan stuff. Um, yeah, my other thing is covers. I have a site called Cover Me and a couple books uh, related to cover songs. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, run, don't walk to uh, your computer and, uh, and, and log on to the internet and then go to twitter.com and follow Ray. And then there are links to, uh, his newsletter and, uh, his books that he's written in his Twitter bio. Until next time. Joker man.
Oh!